0: Hello and greetings from Calgary. Welcome to the Brian Lilly Podcast. I am Brian Lilly and broadcasting from sunny, beautiful Cowtown, where they tell me on my phone app right now that it is 14 degrees out. I thought we were blessed in Ottawa yesterday with melting snow and sunshine and warm weather. It got up to about 10, 11 degrees, even warmer today here in Calgary. I'm sitting in the sun and thinking I may have to move. Now, what am I doing out in the heart of... Alberta. What am I doing in the financial center for the oil patch and for so much of the growth and development that's happening in Western Canada specifically, but also straight across the country? Well, I'm out here for a conference, a conference called The Essentials of Freedom. And you'll hear about that uh, in coming days. Uh, put on by a guy named Danny Hozak, Uh, met him a couple of years ago, Uh, was on the freedom cruise with Ezra Levant uh, when we all headed up to Alaska. Uh, I guess that was about a year and a half ago now. Anyways, gathering people together to talk about smaller government and principles of freedom. That will come up later in today's podcast when I, I bring you an interview that I did uh, yesterday with John Robson. Uh, John's out here with me as well. Mark Milk going to be at this conference and just uh, some great people. Uh, like I said, details on the conference later. But just because I'm in Calgary doesn't mean I am not paying attention to Ottawa and I need to comment once again on Justin Trudeau's, Justin Trudeau's unbelievable statement the other night about how he compared saying that Muslim women have to show their face, remove the niqab if they wear one, during a citizenship ceremony to sending 915 Jews back to Nazi Germany, or at least Nazi-controlled Europe in 1939. I couldn't believe that he said that. And then I couldn't believe that the day after, Tuesday, I wasn't able to to get up to scrums. I thought, well, surely somebody will ask him about that. Not a single question about it in English. There were questions in French, but not a single question in English on it. So Trudeau holds his Wednesday after caucus scrum, uh, or news conference. He holds it down in the uh, the Charles Lynch Press Theater, named after a, a World War II correspondent, old-fashioned journalist, Charles Lynch. Trudeau goes down there and he actually faced questions on it. I, I was impressed. Mark Kennedy of Post Media trying to get Trudeau to explain how we could sit there or why he decided to sit there, stand there in Toronto on Monday in front of a, a crowd of McGill alumnists, and accuse a sitting prime minister of, of, of being a bigot and trying to get other Canadians to be bigots. Here is the exchange.
1: One Not every question. day you have a party leader accusing a Prime Minister, not just of fomenting fear and anxiety, as you said,
0: but as you said in your speech,
1: prejudice. And you said in your speech that you think they deliberately do it. You must have thought long and hard about whether or not you ought to be accusing a sitting Prime Minister of deliberately sowing prejudice. Why did you do that?
2: I think uh, one of the most important things that we need to remember as Canadians is how we got to where we are. As a nation, how is it that Canada is the one place on this earth that has figured out how to be strong, not in spite of our differences, but because of them? How we have been able to draw in people from every corner of the world and give them paths not just to success for themselves, their families, their communities, but paths to being full Canadians. And that has happened despite many regrettable incidences in our past that we look back and remember and pledge not to do again. The fact is that we are right now in a situation around security, around international terrorism that is causing fear in Canadians. And what we need from a Prime Minister is to allay those fears is to demonstrate confident, reassuring leadership that will address the security issues in a way that upholds what it means to be Canadian. And to see this Prime Minister continually engaging in and allowing his ministers and his government to engage in the politics of fear and division in the run-up to an election, is for me a very dangerous thing, not just for Canada, but for the example Canada can and must be giving to the world. Merci beaucoup.
0: Now, in case you missed it, in case you forgot, I, I want to go back and play the clip that started this all. This is Trudeau on Monday night before that crowd of McGill alumnists talking about how Stephen Harper and the conservatives have the same attitude towards Muslims as Mackenzie Cain, the liberal prime minister in the 30s and 40s, had towards Jews, which is none is too many. Here's Trudeau.
2: So we should all shudder to hear the same rhetoric that led to a none is too many immigration policy toward Jews in the 30s and 40s, being used to raise fears against Muslims today. Last year, after more than seven years of accepting the practice, his Minister of Immigration declared by fiat that women would no longer be able to wear a niqab during citizenship ceremonies. We all know what is going on here. It is nothing less than an attempt to play on people's fears and foster prejudice directly toward the Muslim faith. This is not the spirit of Canadian liberty, my friends. It is the spirit of the Komagata Maru. It is the spirit of the St. Louis. It is the spirit of none is too many.
0: Now, we've already debunked that. More than 300,000 Muslims have come to Canada in just the last few years, since the Harper Conservatives uh, took power. The, some of the top source countries for immigration to Canada are Muslim countries. Top source countries for foreign students are Muslims. And, and Trudeau is trying to say that none is too many is the policy because the government is saying what most Canadians pro- likely believe, which is show your face for 30 seconds while you become a citizen, while you swear the oath. It's not a big deal. I've already described how there are certain times in Islam where Muslim women that wear the niqab have to show their faces. You'll hear in a minute the Prime Minister reading off comments from, uh, from progressive or secular or liberal Muslim groups applauding him on this. But Trudeau doesn't get that. He thinks that you should never be allowed to question Islam. His own faith, his own Catholic faith, which he still claims to profess, he will call repugnant, he will insult, but he will not say anything against Islam. So the P, uh, Hart Trudeau got up and was asking the PM about this in the House of Commons on Wednesday. You're going to hear a long exchange here. It's two questions, two answers, and you don't get a whole lot of information f- from it in terms of new content. But their attitudes are telling. Listen to the attitudes of both men.
2: Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister made more alarming statements yesterday on the rights and freedoms of Canadians. Can he please explain to Canada's half a million Muslim women why he said their chosen faith is anti-women? Well, of course,
3: Mr. Speaker, I said no such thing. What's far more con- disconcerting is the statements that have been made by the Liberal leader and condemned by prominent organizations. Ben Canada uh, said the Liberals' leader's language is divisive and only does a disservice to Canadians interested in dealing with pressing issues of the day. The threat of radicalization and jihadist terror is real. That's what another organization said. The Government of Canada has appropriately and consistently distinguished between marginal extreme terrorist elements of the Muslim community and the broader Muslim community. This distinction is reflected by the more than 300,000 Muslim immigrants who have been welcomed to Canada since 2006.
2: Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister also said yesterday that religious freedoms should be overruled because almost all Canadians don't support the wearing of a niqab. We've seen this before. He was the Reform Party's policy chief when it voted to prevent Sikh RCMP officers from wearing turbans, saying it was a needless concession to a Canadian minority. 25 years later, why does he still insist that the majority should dictate the religious rights of minorities. Mr. Speaker,
3: let me quote what the organization Muslims Facing Tomorrow says. The requirement of citizenship and immigration candidate to remove full face coverings during citizenship ceremonies is not onerous and is consistent with the customs and conventions of an open, liberal, democratic society such as ours. Let me quote what the Coalition of Progressive Canadian Muslim Organizations says. Most Canadians believe that it is is offensive that someone would hide their identity at the very moment where they are committing to join the Canadian family. Mr. Speaker, these are not the views only of the overwhelming majority of Canadians. They are the views of the overwhelming majority of moderate Muslims, Mr. Speaker. It's up to the leader of the Liberal Party to explain why he is so far outside that mainstream.
0: Now, where do you stand on? I mean, you can let me know, Facebook and places like that. Leave comments below the podcast when I post it there. But where do you stand on this? Is this such a fundamental religious freedom that it only applies to secular Canada, but not to Islam, be it universities in Egypt or when Muslim women go on the Hajj to Mecca, the holiest site in Islam, that where they're not allowed to wear the face covering, but but in secular Canada, when they take a citizenship oath, we have to swallow ourselves whole and, and take on a, a, a new way of doing things. Is that the Canada that Trudeau wants? To me, it seems the answer is yes. And he thinks that this is going to be a winning issue for him. Now, politics aside, you can just argue this on principle. And I think that he loses. I think he loses outright. But he is a politician, and he, he has to be doing this for a reason. What that reason is, I haven't been able to figure out yet. But I do know that it is a dangerous path to go down, to give in to stealth Sharia that says Islamic religious law will trump Canadian secular law. That's not something that we allow with anybody else. That's why Trudeau is standing up and saying that despite him being a faithful Catholic, as he'll claim, that he's going to force every MP to vote for abortion. Not allowed to vote pro life at all. Well, the Catholic Church would say that you have to protect life from conception to death. We do not follow religious law at the government level. But Trudeau thinks we should on this front, and he's going to argue that it's religious freedom, even though Islam itself requires the removal of the veil at certain times what do you think facebook.com slash brian Lilly and uh, BrianLilly.com. of course do make sure you check out the videos on rebel media speaking of that coming up next conversation with ezra levant he and i getting together in ottawa before i came out to this conference to talk about the rebel what we're trying to accomplish how it came about stick around that's next So happy to be joined in Ottawa
4: today by Ezra Levant. Ezra, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here with me. Great, thanks so much. It's great to see you in person. And thanks for your work on The Rebel the past month we've really coming along.
0: It's uh, It's been a blast and people keep asking me, what are you guys doing? So let's talk about it. I mean, this really began as a discussion, even before Sun News Network went under, of what do we do? What do we do for Plan B? Neither one of us wanted to to walk away from what we've been doing for the last several years, but the form that we had been doing it in was going to be no more.
4: Yeah, I mean, we all knew that the Sun News Network was in some jeopardy after a CRTC decision ruled against us last fall. So there were some good-faith attempts by people to buy the Sun and keep it going. They just didn't work. So you and I and others, we had a premonition that things were coming. We had hoped that it would be saved. I think we both knew and and others knew that there was a group of enthusiastic viewers out there who, even if the sun itself set, wanted the same ideas and people that they were used to getting on their TV channel. Well, if the CRTC and the cable companies were what did the Sun News Network in, which I believe is the main reason we failed, why don't we just cut out those two bottlenecks, those two hostile middlemen, and go straight to the people. You know, they use that phrase cord cutting these days. Mm -hmm. People don't need traditional cable subscriptions. They can get their Netflix or YouTube. That's what we're doing, and so far, so great.
0: Yeah, it it really was a a combination of factors. I keep saying it was a combination of business factors that helped do the sun in, but underlying those business factors, the regulators, the cable companies, that that infrastructure that you don't need in this cord cutting environment. I've been working with uh, some of the pioneers in this in the, in the United States for the last few years. I've written for Breitbart and The Blaze, and uh, working with The Blaze and Ben Shapiro's group again. It, it's fascinating to see how quickly you can turn things around and, and and get content out. How how you can be connected to the audience in ways that we just weren't on on conventional television.
4: Yeah, I mean, I if you get through that double bottleneck I talked about before, you get through the CRTC. You get through the crony capitalist cable oligopoly. You finally get to your customer. So I was on at 8 p.m. Eastern on a certain channel. So unless you had a PVR at home, you had to race home and tune in at that particular time. It had to have a certain number of commercial breaks, and it was only 44 minutes long. Well, what happens if news broke earlier or later in the day? What happens if there was more or less to say, if there was a guest you want to go along with? I mean... From my point of view and your point of view as a content producer, why wear the straight jacket? And from the more important point of view of the news consumer, to, to have to sit down in front of your TV set at the prescribed hour, those are 20th century concepts. So here we are now, on demand from the user, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever, audio, you know, podcast, video, whatever. But, but also from us, we can... You know, you and I are sitting right now in a courtyard in Ottawa. It just—we can do this from anywhere on the go. Sure, we got to get our production values up a little bit. We're only three weeks old. We will improve, but we've already done things in three weeks that, in some ways, rival the quality of some of the productions we did at the Sun. I,
0: I would definitely agree with that. It's uh, let's talk about next steps uh, because. I I don't know about you, but I was humbled by the crowdfunding campaign. I just, that that showed the depth of feeling that people had that they wanted to open up their wallets. And so from the bottom of my heart to everyone that gave even a a nickel, thank you for that.
4: Oh, it was amazing. We had so many contributors. Uh, I was surprised. I mean, I was optimistic, but even I did not foresee the generosity. Why were people generous? Because, as you know, we're trying to make a go of it as a business. Who would actually donate money to a business? Well, people who think the business ought to be there and who believe in our editorial mission. So, how do we thank people appropriately who give us a hundred, in some cases, five hundred bucks? I mean, the answer is to keep our promises. To keep our promises of being independent and conservative, and to use our best business judgment and to, to do what they want us to do, to provide not just a successor to the sun, but maybe something that grows beyond it. So the only proper way, Brian, that I can think of to thank people is to do what they obviously want us to do.
0: All right. We are still finding our legs in how we do this. But I think that there are some things that we've realized. One, we, we are not able to. But we're not going to try and compete with, either, that building right outside the window. Now, those of you listening don't know what I'm pointing at, but Ezra can see CBC's national headquarters here in Ottawa, where every day at 5 o'clock, Evan Solomon, who's, who's a fine guy, uh, sits down and talks to the same panel of MPs, and the same panel of journalists is Don Martin, who's a next block over, is going to talk to. We're not going to compete with them on breaking news. We're not going to put up a boring panel of MPs. So what is that promise? What are we offering? And I, my view is that it's uh, bringing stories and asking questions others won't.
4: Well, yeah, and especially for you as our point man here on Parliament Hill, I've watched enough scrums to know when they're going softball on someone or hardball. And it's my observation that most of the press corps is too gentle on Justin Trudeau, and they actually cover for him when he does astonishing gaps. Let me give you one piece of evidence for that. If you remember when Justin Trudeau had his ladies' night event in Toronto, um, there were several cameras in that room. The Sun News Network had a camera, and I think CTV was there also. That's when someone asked him, What's your favorite country other than Canada? He said, without missing a beat, it's China, quote, because of its basic dictatorship. Yeah. So we caught that, and CTV, I think it was CTV or Global caught There was another camera in the room. Mm -hmm. We thought that was huge news, and I still believe it is. The other news organization either didn't even realize that was news, or a darker interpretation is... They, quote, edited it to save Justin Trudeau from himself. Tom Clark, good guy, had an interview with Justin Trudeau a couple months ago. I swear to God he asked him, what kind of shampoo do you use? I know, Brian, I mean, you joke around and you've got a sense of humor, but I know that if you have an opportunity to ask Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper a tough question, you're not going to ask... A shampoo question. Let the other guys do that. The Sun News Network asks tough questions, and the Rebel Dot Media will ask tough questions that the other guys just won't.
0: You, you know, as someone that has done a lot of sit-down interviews, I've interviewed Stephen Harper. I believe, st- I believe my record is still that I've interviewed him more than any other member of the press gallery since he became prime minister. I get asking those light questions, those human-interest questions, but for me, it's it's normally more about movies that you've seen or something that will reveal your personality not what shampoo do you use Well, the
4: reason I use that example but, but, you know, it's, it's yeah. a
0: great example and there were lots of things that Trudeau could have been asked about in that and, and, and he wasn't and just like the day after uh, the uh, he made those comments and I, I want to ask you about this in a minute the day after he made those comments comparing the requirement to remove a niqab during a citizenship ceremony not saying you can't wear it ever but removing a cab during a citizenship ceremony is akin to sending 915 Jews back to Nazi Germany. He wasn't asked about it in English. Now, the French reporters did. And the Niqab story's big in Quebec, but they, they, they asked him about
4: the Prime Minister being a bad guy. Yeah, and let me give you one more detail about that very same story. The night Trudeau gave that shocking speech, the Globe and Mail's first online headline referred to that outrageous comparison. Trudeau compares Harper to Nazi policy on Jews or something like that. Yes. And the liberals obviously got on the phone to their friends at the Globe and Mail and got them to change a headline. Could you Do you think that the Globe and Mail would ever change a headline for Stephen Harper? I,
0: I, I have to say kudos to Jane Tabor at the Globe, because as much as I'll throw brickbats, i, I got to give kudos. Jane was the first person I saw that saw the speech and highlighted that and reported on because quite often i think it's it's not that uh reporters are, are even sometimes they're covering for politicians like sometimes they just don't get that these things are stories and, and, and they don't they're like
4: they just think well yeah yeah that that's bad and that may have been what happened at that china comment that the other network they all love china yeah so they said oh yeah well we love china too and they're using their dictatorship to bring in green policies, which is a laugh yeah. if you know the pollution in China. So yeah, and, and part of that is the political monoculture. I use the phrase media party or consensus media, and people sometimes say, what are you talking about? You're not a conspiracy theorist. No, it's not an active conspiracy. It's just everyone here, there, there's a common culture, common assumptions. Well, yeah, Harper is bad, and yeah, Omar Khadr is good, and yeah, global warming's a fact, and yeah, if you talk about the Ontario sex ed curriculum or pro-life, you're some anti-sex, you know, uh, Squaresville person. Like, it's just these common assumptions. What well, I my, like,
0: You know, my, my favorite example, as someone that's lived in Ottawa for a long time, been a member of the press gallery for a long time, part of the pack mentality comes from the fact that most of these people that scream the loudest about diversity all went to the same schools, They mostly all look the same. They tend to live in the same leafy white neighborhoods. I mean, you you go to uh, one of them here in Ottawa is Westboro. If you don't look Scandinavian, you're some kind of wacky ethnic minority out in Westboro. (laughs) And uh, they've got some great shops. I'll go out and visit. But it, it, it is the least diverse part of of Ottawa. And that's where the journalists live while they talk about how much they love diversity. And, and, well, it shows in where they live just like it shows in their diversity of opinion, which is near non-existent.
4: That's right. And uh, it's just a, a worldview. It, it's like that old uh, saying, how did Richard Nixon win? No one I knew voted for him. You know, I forget which, I think it was a Chicago film critic who said that in, and I think it was 72. That she meant that as a comment on the world, but it was really a comment on how insular she was, who regarded flyover country as, you know, the place in between New York and L.A. There's some of that in Canada, but to your point on ethnic diversity, the conservatives hold higher amongst new Canadians than they did amongst old stock or, quote, white Canadians, which shows that even on these cultural and multicultural and niqab issues, the all-white press gallery, which wants to to be a white knight for minorities, doesn't even understand what minorities say. Minorities come to Canada to be Canadian in the main, not to bring Sharia law with them. Some do, but but I think most immigrants to Canada came here because they don't want to replicate the medieval strictures of their homelands.
0: Well, I can tell you as the the child of immigrants. I mean, they came from Britain in the in the sixties. They came for what Canada had to offer, and that was a a, a way of life, um, a work environment, a political environment that they just couldn't get in class stuffy Britain.
4: Yeah. Well, listen. Our name, the Rebel Dot Media. People say, "What do you mean, the Rebel? What are you rebelling against? How can a conservative, which we generally are, be rebellious?" Well, I think that. I've turned that word over a few times in my head. My kids think it refers to the rebels in Star Wars, like Luke Skywalker. Yeah, that'd be my kids, too. Yeah, they love the fact that we're not like Darth Vader or the Empire. They wouldn't like it very much if Daddy was on Darth Vader's team. But more seriously, we're rebelling against the old technology. We talked about the bottleneck of the regulators and the cable oligopoly, rebelling against the strictures of the old technology that you had to be on for 44 minutes at this hour of the day we're rebelling against the group think that you and I have talked about and I just want our spirit to be a little irreverent, a little bit contrarian a little bit challenging the status quo and by the way not just challenging Justin Trudeau or Thomas Mulcair challenging Stephen Harper when he needs to be challenged, now I don't think he's suffering from a lack of challengers, but we ought to challenge him from a conservative point of view when he loses the thread on issues important to us
0: Look, I'm on the record as saying that I think Bill C-51 has some really good parts, but I'm concerned about some of the impacts on free speech. So let's take a look at it and amend it if it needs be. Just like, Do you remember when um, uh, Vic Taves was uh, justice minister? And he stood up and there, there was the internet snooping bill or the cyberbullying bill, whatever it was. And he said, you're either with us or the child pornographers. Well, the conservatives eventually backed down off that. But it wasn't because... The CBC and CTV and all the usual suspects were screaming about them. Sun News went after them. I went after them. I had somebody tell me that they said um, they were in a meeting of uh, conservatives in Calgary, and they said, "Did you hear Lily?" And, you know, not to blow my own home, but they, did, they said, "Did you hear that Lily is screaming at us about this bill?
4: Something's wrong here."
0: They went back, they looked at it, and they fixed
4: it. You know, I had a similar interview with Taves on my show of the Sun. I think you're right because when the conservative government saw good faith critics who aren't jumping on them just as a matter of sport as most of the press gallery does i think that we had an impact i know for a fact that the sun news network despite its low general ratings was the news channel of choice for many in the cabinet i have no doubt that the rebel dot media is already becoming that and we've already interviewed a number of cabinet ministers. You interviewed Jason Kenney just the other day, for example. I have no doubt that you will again soon interview the prime minister in your new capacity. So I think that we punch above our weights because we are different, because we're not part of the groupthink. One of my favorite subjects, Omer Cotter, I wrote a book on it. I wrote that book specifically because I saw this groupthink in Ottawa and the press gallery, oh, he's a little lamb, Guantanamo's child, Child soldier, all this baloney that doesn't refer to the fact that he's a convicted, confessed, unrepentant Al Qaeda terrorist who has never renounced the jihad to this day. And I just could not believe that every journalist was singing from a songbook. It was almost like the, you know, it was just so uh, uniform the coverage. That's why I wrote my book, and that's what the Rebel Dot Media is about: rebelling against the conformity. All right, Ezra, you and I
0: could sit here and talk all day. We won't do that. Uh, let's wrap it up there and I'm sure we'll have more conversations. Uh, I normally give you a bunch of web addresses. I think we're we're sticking with one this segment, therebel.media. Not therebel.com, therebel.media. More to come. Welcome back to the podcast here in the Atrium of the Sunlight building with a longtime friend John Robson, who had some great news over the weekend. I actually ran into your wife, I ran into Brigitte at the Manning conference, and she just had this big smile over her face. I know you were there, I didn't see you, never ran into you the whole time, but you guys hit your goal for funding the Magna Carta project while you were there at the conference.
1: That's right, we were at the conference, we passed $75,000, which was our target, and because Kickstarter's all or nothing, it meant we didn't get zero, which we'd been concerned might happen. We're now a few thousand dollars over that, we are able to make the film, I mean, You know, contributions are still welcome. They'll help us a bit with post-production, but we got what we needed. And to me, this is a great vindication of a free society. You know, we said we wanted to tell the story of the people's liberties with the people's help because when you have effective property rights, when you have security, the person, due process of law, it makes space for human beings to flourish. Some people misunderstand. They think that individual rights are about greed and selfishness. They're not. They're about... Much of the world is caught between coercion from above and anarchy from below. There's just no room to breathe, to act, or to dream. But when you have the space that Magna Carta creates, then people can get together to help the less fortunate, to have ideas flourish, to prosper, to have a dynamic
0: culture. Can you imagine trying to start a business where there's no property rights?
1: Yeah, or it's just impossible. There's no stability. It's foolish to invest your time and effort. Whereas in in a society where they do exist, people develop the habit of trusting one another. One story, I got to the radio station, CFRA, where I do an appearance every Monday, and one of the producers had $75 in cash that someone had left for me, believing. First of all, the producer would tell me about it and give me the money. And secondly, that if they just gave me this money, no strings attached, I would make the best documentary I could. And when people can trust one another, they learn that where there's responsibility and opportunity, people grow into better human beings. It is so important. And when people think having the government do everything will help us, it'll protect us from insecurity. But it chips away at our ability to do these things for ourselves that government really cannot do properly. And a world in which we've had over a thousand people, most of whom have and don't know us at all, have entrusted us with any sum from a dollar up to fairly large numbers without any recourse if we don't do it because they just believe that this is a venture we're all in together. That's the miracle of a free society and okay. something we should cherish and not let slip away.
0: I did have an experience similar. Uh, we went at the Manning Conference. You know, the, we, for the rebel media, we had our own crowdfunding campaign a woman just walked up slapped a check in my hand said here this is for you guys we love what you're doing and that, it's fantastic to see that but both you know I, I was active in promoting both crowdfunding campaigns yours and the rebel media on social media you know going out on twitter on facebook and saying here's good causes can you support them and i had say people coming to me now these are primarily progressives who just view us with disdain to begin with saying, oh, so you're socialists now. And they saw going to regular people and saying, do you want to fund us through this crowdfunding campaign? They saw this as some kind of socialism and therefore we were embracing what we've always said we, we will not embrace.
1: Yeah, and there's a weird agreement between some extreme libertarians and the left that, that private property rights and individual rights are selfish, that the idea here is to grab it all for yourself and you know, Darren, you, Jack, I'm all right. They don't understand that the essence of a free society is people getting together. People talk about the competitive system. But if you look at all the companies out there, mighty, mighty few of them are directly competing with one another. You know, one tire company may compete with another tire company, but they cooperate with the rubber manufacturers, the vehicle manufacturers, all the kinds of people who are involved who need tires. uh,
0: This sounds like iPencil.
1: Exactly. 98% of it is cooperative. And and an interesting example that I, I must mention, Mark Stein, who promoted our documentary. It was last Thursday that he put up a post talking about Magna Carta and about the documentary. And we had a huge response. You think about people who have only heard of us because Mark Stein said, I've got a couple of friends making a documentary and you should believe they'll make a good one. And on the basis of that, we were getting money from the other side of the world, from Australia, from across the Atlantic, from Ireland, from Britain. All of this, this amazing ability to cooperate depends not on socialism, but on capitalism, on letting people become who they're meant to be. By shouldering responsibilities, we become responsible people. And Tocqueville talked about this, the way in which too much regulation smothers the vitality of free society. That's not what the socialists want to do, but as long as they don't believe that individualism is about cooperation, if we don't say it, nobody's going to. And, you know, the extreme, uh, the, sort of the Randian libertarians who tend to find the idea of cooperation and charity repellent They agree with the socialists, but it's not what it's about. It's about this whole idea that people will get together, find a worthy cause. They won't wait for George to do it. Certainly not King George. They'll simply do it themselves. And we believe this could happen. And I'm just—it's such a vindication of a free society. But yeah, sure, I have a self-interest. It's my documentary, but it's not—you know—the rebel media. There's people raising money for charity. This is all around
0: us. Well, Adam Carolla, who has been a pioneer in podcasting actually makes a living from it now. Did it for a year and a half, I was hearing him say in an interview the other day. Did it for a year and a half before he made a dime. He actually spent money. Well, now he went out and he crowdfunded a movie. He got $1.4 million. He he directed, he wrote, he starred in the movie, got others involved. He said they've all been paid. He hasn't. He's hoping to get a payoff from actually showing the movie and people saying, you know what, I, I like this. I want to you know pay $10 or whatever to see it.
1: Yeah, because people are not greedy and selfish. In a system that rewards the better virtues, people, I, I keep saying this phrase, it was something here, but at, at a Cardis event, Roberts, uh, Father Robert Sirico, who runs the Acton Institute, was mm-hmm. talking about this, about how a free society is a place for human flourishing. It's not all about the money. It's not about Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge pre-redemption. It's about finding meaning in responsible cooperation with your fellows where you get to decide what matters and it, it's it's an inspiring sight to see. And it's like these stories, you know, some family a tragedy, their house burns down or something and then someone says hey we should help them and they start a campaign and thousands of dollars pour in to help them find a new place to live and furnish their home. People are like that. People can be very nasty but people can also be wonderful and, and where there is room they tend to be better and, and again I say that this image of coercion that People need to be told what to do, and, and sometimes it's a very Canadian edge. Canadians need government. Sure, Americans may be involved, but Canadians aren't. That's not true. It's an insult to Canadians, and it's also just factually wrong. There are an enormous number of people out there who are doing this. and, and there's people with very limited means, but they see a worthy cause, they find $20, and they put it in because they think it matters to get it done.
0: Alright, let's get to some nitty-gritty. When does production begin? When can people expect to see this documentary?
1: Well, the, the real production begins around mid-April. We're off to the United Kingdom to visit these classic historic sites. We're going to be mead, we're going to interview Daniel Hannon, the author of Inventing Freedom, a marvelous book.
0: Uh, we're going to go to the Tomb of in And a great John. speaker. I mean, just just put an hour as a bonus content, an hour of Daniel speaking at the end of the DVD, and, and that'll help sales.
1: Well, if he'll, if he'll let us, we'll <laughs> consider that. Uh, you know, going to the Houses of Parliament, going to Stamford Bridge to Hastings, where the uh, Inigo Jones Banqueting House, where Charles I was executed. We'll come back, we'll be editing that. We're going down to the United States Mm -hmm. to talk about Magna Carta and the founding of the U.S. But also, I'm sorry to say, we have to talk about some of what's going wrong. That the American government has gotten far too big, far too out of control, as has our own, as has the British government. This will take us, all the filming will take us through to Magna Carta coming to Ottawa. We're going to be there for that in early June. The 800th anniversary of the sealing of Magna Carta is June 15th, and we'd like to say to be ready for that, but we cannot realistically promise that. There is an outside chance, but don't go looking for it because we're going to take the time to do it right early September, certainly, maybe sooner. But, okay, I, bet, but I mean,
0: part of it fun. is Magna Carta coming to Ottawa and you want to be there for, for shooting that.
1: Yeah, because, you know, people sometimes get the impression, oh, Canadians don't care about their history, they don't care about individual liberty, that's such a wretched American thing. We're looking to the future and the, you know, the Charter and on, and the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But there is a deep attachment to these things among the populace, and I'm convinced there's going to be a huge crowd turning out because they do know it matters. They know that where we came from, what the story we're part of, the heroism of people in the past who defended freedom, must be our inspiration. And and that the rights that are in Magna Carta have improved and refined they have made the society that is prosperous, culturally flourishing, and strong. And if we throw those away for a whole new set of rights, we, it's not as though you know that any other kind works. They probably don't. And people feel this in their bones, and I'm sure there are going to be big crowds. Ten million people came to see Magna Carta in New York City in 1939. I don't think we're going to get ten million in Ottawa, but I will bet you we get a huge response.
0: All right. You, you talked about looking at the future and you and I have discussed this so many times uh, progressives seem to think Canadian history began in 1967 prehistory would be the piercing years um, they, they just they don't look back beyond that you know it's all about the 60s and onward. Justin Trudeau gave a speech the other night in Toronto Now maybe you've heard some of the controversy around him comparing uh, asking women that wear the, the niqab to show their face at citizenship ceremonies to, Turning back at the MS St. Louis and um, 915 Jews being sent back to Nazi Germany, but the speech was supposed to be about liberty, and he kept talking about his father's charter. I mean, to him, that that that's it. That's the that's the be all. That's the end all.
1: Yeah, exactly. Sex was invented in 1963, and human rights were invented in 1982. And, but you look at the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it has some good rights in it, but these things go back to Magna Carta and beyond. I mean, the, the men who forced John to seal Magna Carta at Runnymede were inspired by the Coronation Oath of Henry the First in 1100, and it looks back to Ethelbert of Kent. You know, that's a long tale of success, but then there are these weird collective rights in the Charter, these things that come down from on high, but there's no real way of enforcing them from you know, equalization to these aboriginal rights that apparently... Trump other rights, but nobody, including Aboriginals, knows what you've got there, and you may not have anything. There's no real way to enforce them. It is is not just collective and nebulous. It doesn't work at all. And the Charter, like our Constitution, is a mishmash of very sound elements and completely preposterous ones, and together they do not add up to a functioning system. But again, these people who have historical amnesia, it's like an individual who's got amnesia. You don't know where you came from. You don't know what story you're part of. You don't know what you're meant to do next, so you make these pretty speeches, but then you make completely irrational policy choices that are incoherent.
0: I want to ask you, incoherent to me is what so many people sound like when they talk about rights, because we seem to be moving towards positive rights. The classical view of of rights is that governments do not grant rights, governments protect rights. So our right to uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. That's saying the government can't force you to associate or worship a certain way or say certain things. But now I'm being told that water is a human right, food is a human right, the internet connection is a human right, and those Well, if that's a human right, then someone has to provide that. And and to me, that's a positive right and a dangerous way for us to go. And and self-esteem is a human right. And you know, when you say, well, if if you have a positive right to something, someone has
1: to give it to you, then the response will be, sure, but they've got lots, they could give it to you. The problem, I think, is a lot deeper than that. When you're protecting your life and liberty, and what you make with your own hands, provided you made it honestly, is yours, and you can get a writ if someone, the king or your neighbor, tries to take it from you. It's a right to something that exists, but when you promise people self-esteem, it's not, it's not that something that does exist is rightfully kept by the person who brought it into existence. It's something that doesn't exist is rightfully the property of somebody who didn't make it happen. And the same thing with water. If you promise more water than there is, who's meant to turn it over. You know, you go to somebody else who doesn't have it and say, give it to me, you say, water is a human right and the third world people don't have clean water. And this is a catastrophe. It's a hideous health issue. But when you've got a whole city full of people who don't have clean water, what does it mean to say you have a right to clean water? You've been given something. There isn't. You've been given words instead of things. And this is metaphysical madness, that if you let people make clean water and they have a right to get a, a real legal remedy against somebody who pollutes their water. That you can clean up a stream one yard at a time by going upriver, slapping in junctions and everybody who's dumping gunk into it, whether it's chemical gunk or, you know, human or animal waste, That that is a promise of something that there is. But when you promise people something there isn't, then you have betrayed them and undermined the foundations that create all the bounty you see around you. I mean, why do we have these things in Canada. It's not because of an abstract right to somebody, to stuff, it's not even somebody else's stuff, it's stuff that nobody has, and you're meant to be able to get it from nobody. Well, this is never going to work. It's because we did have individual rights, including property rights and water, the ability to protect a stream and the air from contamination, which governments have taken away methodically over the last half century. So these positive rights, it's not that they're the right to somebody else's stuff, it's that they're the right to something that doesn't exist at all, that you're chasing phantoms, and phantoms are not the stuff of which dreams are made, not, not the dreams that come true of, I want to work hard, I want to improve, I want to help the less fortunate, I want to, with my own sweat and effort and imagination, make the world a better place than it was. That's what individual rights, what we call negative rights, though I dislike that term because they're not negative at all, they're the font of creativity and achievement, that's what they protect.
0: Alright, I think you're going to hear some of this in the documentary when it comes out, and. If you are in Calgary and you're at the, you and I are going to a conference together. Uh, what, the what essentials is, of freedom. The, the essentials of freedom. Danny Hozak uh, running that out in Calgary along with some other great people. Um, you'll get to see John, see myself, meet us there, and uh, and have some great conversation. John, great talking as always. Do check out brianlilly.com and the Facebook page, facebook.com/slash brianlilly. And as always, you can catch my uh, my videos and other writings on the Rebel Media. More to come.